0: This episode of the While She Knapps podcast is sponsored by Search Press North America. Best-selling books for sewing, quilting, knitting, fine art, and many other crafts. Award-winning titles include the A to Z Embroidery Books and the Half Yard Sewing Series. Whether you're a beginner or an expert looking for new inspiration, Search Press delivers consistent step-by-step instruction books for all crafters. You can find Search Press books in all major craft stores, as well as specialist retailers around the world. Find out more at searchpressusa.com. Thank you so much, Search Press. And now, here's the show. to episode 134 of the While She Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today we're talking about building a business as a surface designer with my guest Erin Dollar. Erin is the textile designer behind the home decor brand Cotton and Flax. She's known for her minimalist modern approach to surface pattern design and her textile home goods have been stocked in indie retail shops around the world as well as on the shelves of stores like CB2, Needs Supply, and West Elm. In 2016, she launched Arroyo, her first fabric collection for Robert Kaufman Fabrics. And this month, her second collection, Balboa, arrives in stores. Erin Dollar, welcome. Thanks so much, Abby. I'm so excited to talk with you. Yeah, I'm excited to have you. And we've gotten to know each other a little bit through Craft Industry Alliance, where You have done a whole bunch of amazing writing for us as well as a webinar, so we are super grateful. And you have tons of amazing creative business experience to share. Um, So this should be a really great episode. I'm very much looking forward to talking with you. And um, (laughs) I'm hoping you can kind of start us off in the beginning and just kind of give us a background on your kind of creative journey and talking about um, where you grew up and um, how your sort of upbringing Was as far as creativity was concerned. Were you always a
1: maker? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, It's funny now because I feel like uh, the creative things that I'm working on day to day are actually maybe closer to some of the creative things that I worked on when I was younger. Um, I learned to sew when I was gosh, I want to say like early teenage years, my mom, um, was generous enough to teach me how to sew when I was probably at my like peak angsty self. So I'm really grateful that she was patient enough to work with me and teach me how to alter my own garments and just do really basic, um, sewing. And, you know, I, it's funny. I think that, um, I kind of put that aside for quite a few years while I was in college and kind of early adulthood and didn't pick it up until right before I founded Cotton and Flax. I was much more focused in that interim on visual arts. I was kind of going down this path of becoming a fine artist. I studied fine art in college and um, was really drawn into printmaking. That was kind of my biggest focus during those years. It was something that I discovered and maybe I think my junior year at college and I just was, I fell in love. It's like this incredible balance between science and art where there's so much in terms of the um, methods and the kind of um, process that's really intricate and requires a lot of focus and attention and Um, then obviously the, the visual side of it, creating images and, um, motifs and imagery that kind of reflect, reflected my, um, artistic point of view. It was all these different challenges and really captivated me for a number of years. And, uh, after university, I moved back to my hometown in Portland. And I think that there was some, something there about moving back to my hometown kind of collaborating with other artists in that city, uh, experiencing the city as like an adult rather than a child. I think it really nurtured something in my creativity that maybe wouldn't have happened if I had stayed in Santa Cruz where I studied or, um, you know, moved to San Francisco where God, the majority of my friends moved after, after college. So Yeah. Coming back to Portland, joining a co-op printmaking studio, collaborating with some of those other artists. That's really what led me to textile design. Um, A friend of mine in the printmaking studio was obsessed with quilting and, you know, she and I kind of talked about, oh, let's make some custom fabrics with some of this artwork that you're making. Uh, Let's teach ourselves screen printing and then we can kind of produce some custom fabrics to work into these projects. And you know, then creating these one-offs, pillows, tea towels, things like that, that I was bringing to arts and craft shows. And I was just feeling this pull towards the textile stuff that was just undeniable for me. And that's really where Cotton and Flax was born from. I see. Okay. So when you were growing up, what, what did your parents do for work? Oh boy. Yeah. So it's, um, it's funny because I didn't really realize it until later, but I think that I did get a little bit of exposure to that kind of entrepreneurial lifestyle because my dad had a bunch of like indie businesses throughout my childhood. And my aunt, um, was really, really independent as well. She had a floral business and, um, you know, worked as a a floral designer for many years. And I got that experience of sitting in her studio, kind of um, at the workbench with her, she's putting together all these like different pieces for weddings and events and getting to kind of watch her work and seeing that independence firsthand, I think gave me a, a broader view of maybe what was possible really early on. I say, yeah, sometimes I can
0: have um, kind of penetrate your psyche without you really realizing it and have an effect well, on yeah. you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And
1: it's funny, I think, you know, when I was younger, art was an outlet for me. It was a way to express myself, to express my emotion. And as I got older and sort of started to imagine what my career might look like, I think I was a lot more practical at first. When I I first went to college, I thought, oh, you know, I'm going to I'm going to study uh, environmental studies. I'm going to help save the world. And we're going to like fix global warming. I'm going to live in a redwood tree. It's going to be amazing. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that, that kind of experience of going and pursuing like maybe a more traditional um, educational path where I was, you know, really in the, you know, statistics and science and uh, math and all of these things. And I just didn't feel, um, you know, I felt excited by it. I felt um, passionate about it, but I didn't feel the same joy that I felt from making and from um, being creative. And so, you know, it, it just sort of felt like a matter of time before I started getting pulled into the creative stuff again and switching majors. And then, you know, after graduation, finding that creative community and just continuing to dive into it was yeah, really hard to resist.
0: (laughs) Understandable. So, um, so you were working with this friend who was really interested in quilting and you started to print on textiles. And the result of that is something practical, right? Like a tea towel, for example, that you can use or, you know, sell to somebody who will then use in their day-to-day life to, you know, in their kitchen, for example. And that's sort of different from, what a printmaker who's, you know, sort of formally trained would necessarily be doing, which would be likely making a fine art print that would be hung on the wall, for example. Um, So, you know, was there a shift in your mind? Was it hard to accept um, kind of shift, making that shift from, I guess, what somebody would describe as
1: art to craft? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, uh, I didn't think about it all that much at the time. Um, but printmaking is actually, I think really unique in that it's this art form that's basically set up for you to create multiples. So it's like, in a lot of ways, it's kind of the most, um, capitalist sort of art making. I, I, I guess that's probably not the best description of it because you don't have to be making these enormous additions of things and producing multiples of everything. But um, once you've kind of done the work of setting up a silkscreen or, you know, and, and the, some of the more archaic art forms that I was doing, like lithography, you know, levigating the stone, getting it perfectly level, treating it with different acids to get the image to show up when you're printing, like all of this work that you do, you kind of, you feel like, oh my God, I've spent all this time setting it up. I better make more than one. Oh my gosh, I need to make this worth my time. So there's already this sort of idea of wanting to see the fruits of your labor kind of multiply in that way and so when it when we started experimenting on fabrics it was so easy once we'd burned a screen with my imagery on it let's just produce two and then we'll give one to our friend oh let's produce a few more and then we'll bring them to uh, the craft fair that we're doing next month with our fine artworks and just kind of have them on the table and see if people are interested it was it was sort of just following that interest and the real pull for me was then, Um, seeing people's enthusiasm around them. And maybe, you know, there was a little bit of excitement that, you know, if, if people weren't in the market for a piece of artwork, I think it's a little bit easier for you to kind of say, oh, what about this tea towel or coaster or something that you might give as a housewarming gift? Art is so personal. And sometimes I think people hesitate in terms of buying it as a gift for someone else or Um, Even having more than one in their home of, you know, something like a a large poster size print is kind of a a difficult ask for people. But, you know, it's a little bit easier to say, oh, it's a tea towel. I could have more than one of those in my kitchen. That's okay. And so it seemed like it was a little bit of an easier sell um, when I would go to markets, when I would list things on Etsy at the time. It sort of felt like, okay, well, this is getting more interest in a lot of ways than those fine artworks where. You know, maybe I would sell a few a month in a gallery, or um, you know, a a handful on Etsy, or you know, whatever that might have looked like. But the the home goods, it felt like there was a little bit more demand, so I just kind of followed that that kind of excitement and enthusiasm. Yeah, it's
0: like art for the people. You know, it's just really accessible when you can find a use for it. And I mean, for me, that's always been the draw of craft. Um, You know, I took a lot of fine art classes in high school. And some in college as well. And although my college had very limited offerings, but mm-hmm. be that as it may. Um, I always struggled with fine art because I always felt like it was sort of like limited, like the, the utility of it. Like I collect art and I, I love fine art. Don't get me wrong, but the, mm. the, the utility of it always sort of bugged me. Like I, when I was making it myself. Um, but then sure. when I began making things that you could use, I felt somehow such more satisfied. And I think it's easier, as you said, it's an easier ask. It's um, also the price point is often lower and it's just um, something people can easily understand and digest. Like I get it. I get how this works. And if you're just making the pattern as your art and the object itself is just something people easily recognize in their own home, they've already got one like it um, that they use all the time, then, you know, Mm -hmm. they, they can uh, imagine how it would work for them.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think there is some sort of shift in the kind of creative challenge of designing more utilitarian products or doing textile design rather than fine artwork. I think you're thinking about, you know, actually I think one of the best things that's kind of been pushed back onto my radar as a, as more of a product designer, a textile designer is the sort of ethical component that was a huge part of my life before I became a fine artist. The sort of thinking about the process, the kind of um, the tie to the environment, thinking about using natural fibers rather than things that are essentially glorified plastics, um, synthetic fabrics were something that I just never wanted to kind of work with. I, I really wanted to focus on finding sustainably grown um, fibers to be able to print with and and thinking about non-toxic inks and how can I have a low waste studio. It really brought me back into this sort of eco-minded place that when I was a fine artist, it wasn't as much of a part of my day to day. So in in some ways, it really kind of rejuvenated some things um, that were kind of complementary to the creative side, too. Yeah.
2: yeah,
0: that's interesting. Yeah, I like that. And I like the idea of thinking of yourself as a product designer. Um, I mean, you're a pattern designer, but you're also a product designer. Um, and I yeah, there's a yeah. bunch of ways in which I think you think about yourself um, that are really helpful. Um, and one of them is about partnerships. And um, mm. you've done a lot of collaborations and a lot of partnerships. And um, I know I've read some interviews that you've done where you've talked about how cotton and flax really took off when you began partnering with other um, skilled people who could help you do things in your business that maybe weren't your skill set, for example, a photographer, a stylist, that sort of thing, um, to make your work shine. And um, it just sounded as though when you did reach out to those people and collaborate with them, that was when, you know, you were able to really start to sell more of your work, maybe sell more of it online, maybe get some of the bigger contracts that you were hoping for. And, um, if that's correct, if I'm, if I'm putting that uh, accurately, I mean, I thought maybe you could sort of talk to us a little bit about, um, about those years when you were making those connections and how it changed things
1: for you. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, I, maybe to start off this, conver- this part of the conversation, it's like context for who I am and what I'm about. I am DIY minded, like almost to a fault. <laughs> I and I think, think like a well, That's why like, I wanted to say this is because yeah.
0: I think so many of us are, I mean, I think when we, we are DIY people and we make our mm-hmm. own things and that's why we got into this business in the first place. And I am also DIY minded to a fault as well as thrifty to a fault mm-hmm, where I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm not spending money on that. I could just make that myself or whatever it is, you know, I'll just yeah, yeah. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, you know, hire a photographer. I'll just learn to use my camera, you know, or whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, and, I think uh, that yeah.
1: naivete and curiosity is what propels creative people forward. Like there's something to that. There's a reason why so many of us are kind of like that in our creative businesses. And I don't think it's totally negative. I think, that it's definitely, um, part of the enthusiasm and joy that I find in my work is like the discovery, the learning, the kind of, um, the constant kind of creativity and the process of being curious about how to push things forward. I think that is actually a center of a lot of really good, happy feelings in my work, but it, the the dark side of that is that feeling of Oh, well, like, I don't, you know, I don't have the budget to be able to hire, you know, for X, Y, Z position. I don't have the budget to hire a graphic designer. I don't have the budget to hire um, um, an employee to help me with shipping and fulfillment. I don't, you know, whatever that block that you're coming up against that you're feeling like, oh, now I have to take care of it all myself. That can be really, really limiting in growing a business. I think it's it's one thing when you have that sort of DIY mindset for a creative practice or, Um, an art making practice. But when it comes to running a creative business, that can be a huge roadblock. And so for me, um, one of the things that I felt myself struggling with, especially in the beginning, and I think you just mentioned this, is like photography. Photography is such a huge part of running an e-commerce business. And, you know, we all kind of know that inherently. It was true, you know, back when I feel like Etsy was really the like forefront of, the creative marketplace. And it's just as true now as people are kind of breaking out and starting their own websites on Shopify or WordPress or what have you. I think the photography for a creative business makes or breaks you. Being able to really quickly see the value of someone's products and get those rich, interesting details up front, right where people can see them in the front of your essentially online storefront I think is the most important thing you can do for, for a creative business that's product driven. Um I'm sure there's other things that people are like, but wait, what about social media? But wait, what about <laughs> marketing? What about all, you know, I mean, there's I, a million things, but yeah, if I your always, pro- if your product photos are terrible, it doesn't matter. You, like right. it's just not going to happen. Like it, there's just no way to get around it. And um connecting with photographers when I moved to Los Angeles, I think was just the biggest, biggest help in pushing my business forward. Um, I was really lucky to connect with two women in particular, Laura Joliet and Jessica Common Gore. Both were so, so helpful. Like I think about it now and I'm just like, how was I so lucky to meet them and to, you know, be in touch with them. And just right time, right place, connect with them and have them get what I was trying to do in my business and help me push that creative vision forward by helping me with like photographing for lookbooks, um, photographing one-off projects that I was trying to promote. They were just there for me in a moment where I was coming up against the edge of my own skill set. And so, you know, in terms of like, Advice for other creatives or other makers who are, who are experiencing that feeling of like, Oh gosh, I can't figure out how to make this look the way I want. I mean, there's this quote that Ira Glass had kind of circulating around the, the interwebs for a while. And it's sort of this, this struggle that I think a lot of creative people have where you have this vision of what your work could be. And it's so strong and so clear in your mind, but your skill set just can't meet it yet. There's this this gap between where you think you can get to and where you're at. And and sometimes it's just a matter of practice and putting in those hours and really kind of honing your craft. And sometimes it's asking for help. And I think for me realizing you know when to kind of look around, see who the helpers are, who can I ask, who can I hire, who can I reach out to um, and a lot of times it doesn't necessarily have to be a higher situation. I always try to compensate the people who work for me fairly, but there's definitely been opportunities where I've found a friend who has a, a skill set that I'm like, this is so great. This is complimentary to what I'm doing. How can we create a collaboration that's rich and interesting and engaging for both of us that we can both benefit from and not necessarily have to exchange money, not necessarily have to do, um, you know, a traditional contract, finding those people in your life. Who want to help you who want to be there um, to kind of push your business forward and to and to get creative work that's you know vibrant and exciting because of that collaboration finding those people and connecting with them has been a huge part of how cotton and flax has grown I yeah I, I can't imagine having done that without the help from those photographers early on.
0: I want to take a minute now to talk with our sponsor, Search Press North
2: America. This is Anne Woodcock from Search Press North America. This is Robert Woodcock from Search Press North America. And what is Search Press North America? Search Press North America is the U.S. and Canada branch of Search Press, which is a leading art and craft publisher in the United Kingdom. We publish everything from fine art, technique books, through knitting, sewing, crochet, weaving, basket weaving, embroidery, uh, you name it, we pretty much cover all kinds of crafts. The method and the process for our books is always to have very detailed step-by-step works to allow you to follow along and learn at your own pace, um, really from expert guidance, from people who are running courses, and who are traveling the world and showing their craft and their and their art skills. This year, particularly in the sewing and uh, sewing area, we have uh, two great books coming that are just out now called the Build a Bag series. That are from the great author Debbie Shore. For her Build a Bag series, uh, she uses a template, a plastic template, that is included in the books and shows you how to use that template to make a range of really fun and really gorgeous. Tote bags and clutch bags and all purpose bags. So these books have been very, very popular, and Debbie is on the Create and Craft television show, and she also has her own YouTube channel where she talks about how to use sewing to create really beautiful masterpieces. Um, Search Press has some very good quilting books, particularly under, under the authorship of Carolyn Forster, who is a very, very popular quilter and regularly is teaching courses at Quilt Market and lots of other quilting shows around the U.S. and Canada. Her work is particularly known for very strong design and very good use of interesting fabrics and in combinations that are somewhat unusual. She's probably our leading uh, author in quilting, in particular. The sewing crew among you may be interested in the A to Z series, particularly the A to Z of embroidery stitches, which is one of our really top belt best-selling titles. We have a discount code that is available, and it will be for all listeners for the While She Naps podcast, and they can. choose Choose any Search Press book and receive that discount, uh, the 20% discount and free shipping for any of our titles purchased through the Search Press North America website. Um, the code is WSN102018. A coupon code can be used at www.searchpressusa.com.
0: Thank you so much, Search Press North America. And now back to my conversation with Erin. yeah, absolutely. And then you've also partnered with um different companies that manufacture and make some of your products for you. So you're doing the design and then you're having them make them. So you have, um I know in Los Angeles, you have some um, folks who help sew some of your products, for example, um and yes, and yes. do, yeah, do some of the sewing because, you produce um, things that are sewn with the fabrics that you're printing. And that work is just really time-consuming for anybody who's done production sewing. You know how time-consuming that can be. And then also, you have other um, products like um, pattern notebooks and keychains and sachets and things like that, where you've reached out to other companies that, you know, manufacture those products for you. So I wondered when... You know, you're kind of evaluating a product and a partner. How if you could take us through kind of that process of thinking about, all right, I have an idea for a product like a keychain. And how do you decide, you know, this is going to work with this particular production partner? Or nope, it's not gonna work. I can't, I can't, you know, swing this. I'm either gonna have to completely rethink it or, um, or just try to find a different partner or, or something else. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think I know what you mean. Um, so some, it's funny, I don't think I would have, um, known very much about licensing at the time, but the notebooks are kind of a funny example of when licensing kind of came to me rather than the other way around me searching out clients for those types of projects. Um, the notebooks are created by Scoutbooks. They're up in Portland, Oregon. They're a very like eco-minded company creating recycled paper notebooks that are printed with amazing designs. And they do a lot of custom work for companies and events as well. And they reached out to me because they wanted to um, license some artwork to highlight their printing capabilities to show people that they could do, do beautiful full color illustrations on these awesome chipboard notebooks that they make. And so that was really, you know, on their side, they had this idea of we want to highlight an aspect of our product. Aaron's artwork will do a great job of, kind of making bridging that gap for us um, do you know in terms how they of found, showing off. How did they find you? That's a good question because that was, oh man, it may have been Instagram. It may have been a mutual friend. Um, I think actually it probably was a mutual friend. Okay. There, were, you know, Portland is a a city. It's a big city, but sometimes it feels like a very close-knit creative community because I still feel like, um, even though I've been living away from Portland for, gosh, eight or eight or ten years now, uh, I still feel very connected to the creative kind of community that I was part of while I was there. Um, it's been a little bit easier to remain connected to my kind of Portland people than it has been, um, since moving away from LA or kind of moving from, uh, Santa Cruz kind of, for some reason, it's just that creative community is so interconnected and so supportive. It's been, it's been really remarkable. Um, and so that was kind of an early example of licensing where I, um, you know, worked out a contract for them to license my artworks and they, um, as part of my, um, compensation, they sent me a ton of notebooks to sell in my own shop, which is great for me because that's like, you know, another product at a new price point that I can introduce for my customers who might not be interested in, you know, a hundred dollar pillow or a $25 tea towel that, you know, that's out of reach for a lot of people. And so something like a, you know, four or five dollar notebook is like, great. I feel like, you know, it reaches people who get my vision, but maybe don't want for whatever reason, to purchase home goods at that time. I think every, everybody has used for a little pocket notebook. It's great for taking notes or, you know, keeping your own grocery list in there. <laughs> so it's a little, it's kind of like that um, same thing that we were talking about earlier. It's, you know, finding those partners who um, you can have something that really benefits them. and And in turn, you get something out of that relationship. The best collaborations that I've done are really a two-way street like that. Um, for the other things like the sachets and, um, the kind of more hands-on collaborations where I'm working with a manufacturer to produce a product, uh, that to me has been a, a kind of workaround for my, um, hmm, I'm trying to think of the best way to put this in a way, it's sort of a lack of interest in hiring a staff to do in-house production. And I have zero interest or ambition in becoming a, sort of factory manager for a home decor brand. I want to remain focused on the creative side of those projects. I don't want to have an in-house team of sewers that I need to kind of be, you know, managing and focused on and, you know, calling the sewing machine <laughs> repairman every day. I would much, much, much rather focus on the creative side of my work, drop off or send out the panels of printed fabric to be able to be made into products pick them up and they're all done. Like that to me is magic. I love, love, love working with contract sewers rather than producing everything in house. That was something I used to all do myself. And as the company has grown, as the, um, as Cotton and Flax has grown, I've really had to look for strategic ways to hand off some of that work because it wasn't serving me to do all the sewing. It's much better for me to be able to focus on creating new designs, finding new creative partners and clients to be able to license and um, share my work with the world and to let other people who are, you know, to be frank, like better and at, efficient at sewing than I could ever be. They're always going to have better tools, better knowledge, and just be more efficient and be able to handle that par- process way better than I ever could.
0: Okay. And then in your studio itself, though, you are still hand printing the textiles. So that is when you say like, you, do, you don't want to be a, you know, a factory manager and totally understand that, but you mm-hmm. are still like the, the textiles that are hand printed are still hand printed in your, in your actual studio. And are you doing that entirely on your own or do you
1: have staff that are helping? Yeah, actually, so this is the first year that I've also handed off the screen printing process. And I don't think we've talked much, Abby, since uh, that change happened. Yeah, I'll tell you a little bit about how how that came to pass, because it was actually a really um, difficult and actually emotional part of my business journey to hand off the screen printing to a production partner Luckily, I was able to find someone local. Her name is Gina. She runs this incredible, um, screen printing studio called Heart and Soul Printing. And, uh, it came at a time when my body was starting to feel the toll of too much work, of too much, uh, physical labor, not enough time, you know, exercising, doing strengthening exercises for my back, which had been kind of feeling the pinch of, all of that time sitting at a sewing desk, all of that time reaching and pulling the screen down and, you know, doing each, printing each piece by hand, that really labor-intensive process to create my products, it just took a toll on my body. And uh, in November of last year, I had my back go out for the first time in a really, really bad way. And it completely derailed my business for about a month. Um, anyone who's listening, who runs a creative product business, understands the implications of being essentially unable to work during the busiest holiday season <laughs> time. It's it's horrifying. Oh my like, gosh! Yeah. And all of us kind of have this in the back of our mind of how, um, you know, this is true of everyone, really. But it, I think especially creative people, we feel this intense sort of feeling of our work is tied to our bodies. If you're a painter, what would happen if your hands suddenly, you know, if you had carpal tunnel or arthritis in your hands and weren't able to hold the brush in the same way, it's, it was the same for me in my back. When my back went out, I couldn't print anymore. I couldn't sew anymore. I needed to be, um, standing up every hour or else I would have horrible, uh, stabbing pain in my lower back. And so it really disrupted my normal workflow But beyond that, it showed me how unsustainable the way I'd been working was. And, you know, as much as I feel like I I probably wouldn't believe have believed anyone if they had come to me when I was, you know, 28 when I was starting my business and said, oh, hey, you should really make sure you're doing strength training and making sure that you're keeping your body in peak physical condition, because this is going to catch up with you. I think if someone had said that when I first started my business, I would have waved them off and said, yeah, 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 sure, sure, sure. I'm going to definitely make time for that. Um, But yeah, it came back to bite me in a big way. And so um, for me, I had already at that point started to find those sewing connections, the contract sewers in Los Angeles who were helping me to produce work and that was out of necessity. There weren't enough hours in the day for me to be able to sew all of the things that were going out the door for wholesale orders. But the printing was precious to me. It was how I started the business. It was um, the crux of it all. I started this journey as a fine art printmaker and I had a real block in my mind about how to hand off that part of the process and to still feel authentic in my business and to still feel connected to the business. Um, I was scared. I was worried that once I handed that off, that people would not like the brand in the same way or would, um, look at me as a sellout in some way, but it, you know, I had reached a point where it just wasn't an option anymore and finding Gina, finding someone local who was also an artist and a creative person. And, um, really got it, got what I was trying to do and, uh, was able to just kind of seamlessly take this stuff off my plate was incredible. Like, you know, I'm not a very spiritual person, but sometimes it's like, I just feel this pull towards people like her where I'm like, oh gosh, this is going to be okay. I feel this sense of relief of like, okay, she's going to, she's going to be able to take this from me and it's going to be okay. And that was a huge, huge turning point for me this year and being able to completely let go of the manufacturing. I know I now no longer do any of the the more physical parts of, of that part of my job anymore. I've Have completely there, handed it off, which is nuts.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Have there been, I mean, in the beginning when you and Gina were getting to know each other, mm-hmm. were there, Things that she, you know, product that she brought to you, where you were like, mm, "This isn't quite me," you know what I mean? Like, mm. that's my issue. <laughs> it's like the training piece, you know, and like mm. getting to know each other, and then the beginning part where you know they think that that the person thinks that they're doing it right, but your eye and your standard of the way that you've done it all along. You know, mm. it just, you are like, that's not quite right. It doesn't look like me. It doesn't look
1: the way that I do it. And then, <laughs> you know what I mean? I totally hear what you mean. Yeah. And I think that the... um the thing that I really learned was I was doing so many weird things in my studio because I'm because I'm partially self-taught at silkscreen printing, like going and working with Gina in her studio. And, you know, at the beginning, I kind of would sit in her studio and watch how she was working, take a look at the products that she was printing to make sure that the quality was high. Um, and I was a little bit more hands-on with those first print runs just to kind of keep an eye on things, make sure that we weren't, um, you know, kind of having miscommunications and then, oh, I'd show up and pick up a whole batch of details and they're all printed in the wrong color or something like that. You know, I really wanted to be more hands-on at first. Um, But in spending that time with Gina in her studio, I realized, oh gosh, she has spent time making more efficient setups in her studio so that she isn't, you know, she, her setup was more ergonomic. She had things that were right within reach. So she wasn't walking around and twisting and turning the way that I was in my studio. And I, I learned so much just from seeing her work. And it, it this light bulb went off. Of, I was like, I, there's no reason to believe that I'm the only person who could possibly right. execute this at this level. There are going to be so many opportunities for me to just trust that she knows what she's doing and not spend that extra time and effort worrying about it. And, um, you know, after those first few printing sessions, I really kind of was able to let go of some of that fear. Okay. And you know, that there definitely were moments where, you know, I would I would pick up a tea towel that she printed and I go, ooh, okay, we got to make sure to like keep an eye on this spot here because this is a little bit trickier. It's a big screen, so we need to make sure the pressure is really even but after those first few um printing sessions it's been really smooth sailing so okay all right that's probably partially luck because Gina's amazing um, and having <laughs> so and having to have found her. yeah
0: having someone local where you can really be yeah. there and that's also good so right so, right um i want to talk now about robert kaufman and um you know i know that a lot of people who listen to this show it's really a dream of theirs to design, um, commercial fabrics for the quilting industry and being able to get that contract with Robert Kaufman. And now you're in your second, you know, your second collection, as we mentioned in the intro has just launched. Um, and we've just had fall quilt market, um, that just came and went. And so that's really exciting. And I wondered, I know that you were, sourcing fabrics from robert kaufman uh, a long time prior to this contract coming about is that right like you were you know working with them as a wholesaler to get um, base cloth for the printing so you kind of already had some kind of relationship with them and i'm wondering how you parlayed that or how they kind of came to see your surface design work and decided that that was something that they wanted to you know have manufactured
1: yeah, yeah. And so um just to clarify, I wouldn't, if any of your listeners are out there thinking, "Oh, I want I want to do um surface pattern design. I want to work with a company like Robert Kaufman." Um yeah, the buying from them wholesale was not necessarily something where they were like, "Oh, she's been a good customer. Let's work with her." Right. <laughs> That's definitely not the no, connection. No, um, it's not. But I'll tell you what is um actually a great connection that I made through that a long-term wholesale connection. Being able to have a body of work that literally showed them that there was consumer demand for the type of fabric that we could produce together was completely invaluable in pitching that first collection to them. Since I was already printing my own patterns onto their fabric, it showed them that what we could cr- create together that there was a market for it, showing customer demand that's existing out in the world that they won't have to, you know, go to extra trouble in terms of creating the kind of marketing plan or finding that, that customer base. And like basically saying, these people want it. They're asking for it all the time. I would get DMs on Instagram or in my inbox weekly for printed fabric. And it wasn't something that I could produce in my studio because it would have been a hundred dollars a yard. It would have been cost prohibitive for most people. And being able to bring that to Robert Kaufman with, along with my design. So I I put together this initial pitch that was, you know, 10 different patterns, showing it in different colorways, what it could look like mocked up into sewn garments or sewn finished pieces. And then in addition to that, kind of my explanation of why I wanted to work with them, why I thought this would be a strong partnership. The fact that I've been getting requests for fabric forever, and that I thought that this would be an exceptional partnership because I knew the quality of their fabrics were high. And I was willing to be a a true creative partner to them to really be pushing from my side, kind of getting the folks who are familiar with my work, interested in what I was doing in terms of this collaboration with them. I think that that was really the draw. Um, I don't think they really went and looked at their sales numbers and went, oh, yeah, Erin's bought (laughs) this many hundreds of yards of fabric from us. We should kind of work with her as a creative. That that didn't really come into it. But I think showing them in photos in mock-ups what the collaboration could look like, that was really, I think, what drew them in.
0: Right. Okay. And so can you, so you put together this really nice, it sounds like pitch to them. Mm -hmm. Um, This was something that you really wanted. Um, And so you went for it and, um, and that's really, you know, important. And I wondered if you could describe what, was it, was it just to fulfill consumer demand? I mean, did you see another advantage, I guess, of having commercially manufactured fabric? Because it was just to be able to say to your consumer market, I know you guys have been asking for yardage so that you can make your own projects. And here it is like, and I needed to partner um, with somebody to make it happen. Was that the main sort of impetus, the main reason why you put together the pitch and went to them?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and for me, it's been, um, really kind of a, a lifeline for me and my business, figuring out kind of long-term, uh, where I want the like revenue to come from. I knew that, um, producing things wholesale for a handmade business is challenging. The profit margins are really tough. And I knew that long-term I wasn't going to be able to grow the business into, um, the kind of revenue area that I wanted with wholesale alone. I needed to develop a stronger e-commerce. I needed to develop licensing partnerships where I could be earning royalties. I needed to do more teaching and kind of follow all of these different roads to figure out how to kind of patch together a living. And so licensing, it was really a matter of when, not if. I I knew that I wanted to be partnering with other manufacturers, other brands to see my work work. and different types of products and different worlds. And, um, I didn't want to be responsible for manufacturing that stuff on my own. I think that that's really where for me, the creative pull is the design work and the the artwork that I make. It's not the, the manufacturing side. I, I love the screen printing stuff, but you know, one, especially now this year, as I've kind of set that aside, I'm realizing the joy for me is in the design is in the creative work. And I'd like to bring more of that to my daily life. The reality of being a textile designer at Cotton and Fox is that only a very small amount of my time is actually spent creating artworks. And so for me, it's been just a challenge of how do I kind of take back more of that creativity, take back more of that creative time and have it serve me in earning a living. Um, And so partnering with Robert Kaufman was, yes, partially because I was getting so many inquiries from my customers. When are you going to make fabric? And wanting to see them happy and wanting to provide something beautiful and high quality for them. And also partially thinking about the long-term growth of my business.
0: Yeah. And I love um, the idea of partnerships. So the way that you're seeing Robert Kaufman in your business is they are a partner who produces Mm -hmm. your fabric. Yeah, um, and yeah, I love, absolutely. yeah. And I love seeing it that way. Um, it, it, I don't know. There's something about that mindset that I think is really healthy. Um, it keeps you, um, as an independent person, as an independent business, you're partnering with them. And it, I guess it to me, it puts you almost like on an equal plane with them where they're out there, they're running their business and they do a specific thing. You're out here, you're running your business, you do a specific <laughs> thing. You're partnering together. They're producing this product. Um, and, and it works for both parties, you know. Um, And I guess sometimes I feel as though that in the quilting world doesn't feel as equal. Um, Sometimes it feels as though the company, meaning the fabric company, has more power and the designer feels sort of less powerful. Um, And it doesn't need to be that way. And and it's also maybe in book publishing as well, where Mm. it's great to sort of see the book publisher as a partner. They are P- producing your book for you because frankly publishing a book and having it printed you know in an, uh, somewhere and and warehoused yeah. and distributed yeah. is a huge <laughs> job and takes a ton of expertise and know-how and money etc and same thing with an online class you know one of these online class platforms whether it's you know creative live or craftsy or wherever they are a partner that's their expertise and you have you expert your expertise and it's a partnership and so you're choosing to work with them to be able to produce whatever it is that you need produced um yeah so anyway i just really think that that's a healthy um, mindset to keep yeah
1: Well, that makes me so happy to hear you say that, as I definitely think that one of the things um, that collaboration teaches you is like where your skill set is. I think it's really easy to um, get bogged down in running a business and think, oh, yeah, I'm doing all this stuff and then kind of forgetting. But actually, my strongest skills are in this very, very specific area and what collaboration does is allows us hopefully in the best collaborations to really just be focused on that tiny little sliver of where you have unique skills or talents. And that that, that to me is what I'm chasing after looking for those collaborations and partnerships where I just get to focus in. I'm not doing bookkeeping. I'm not doing <laughs> online marketing. I'm not doing, you know, any of those million other things that I've learned to do in service of my business. I'm just focused on the creativity, the thing that is unique to me that I can do really well.
0: Mm-hmm. And I know when we were emailing back and forth, getting ready for this podcast, you mentioned that in between your first collection for Robert Kaufman and your second one, um, you learned some things about um, you know releasing commercial fabric and, um, and how to do it well. And you've brought some of those learnings to your second collection. So I wondered if you would share, um, some of the things that you picked up
1: along the way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the biggest thing that I've learned is just needing to share tangible examples with folks to show them what they can make with your fabric. Um, this was something I really let Robert Kaufman handled the first time around with Arroyo, they were in charge of producing basically all of the sample sewing projects for the first collection. This time around, I've gone ahead and created a lookbook, which actually just recently debuted on my website. So you can go there to take a look at all of the different sewing projects that me and my team of awesome sewing friends created. Um, We put together a bunch of different garments with Balboa. We put together a bunch of different home decor pieces and um, wallets and bags and things like that. Photograph them really beautifully to hopefully inspire people to sew with the fabric. I think it's one thing to kind of show people swatches of the fabric. And, you know, a lot of people see that and they do get excited. The wheels start turning. Oh, what could I make with this? I love this color. I love this pattern. But there's nothing like showing a finished, beautiful dress that someone has created with the fabric to say, oh, I want to wear that. I'm going to make something like that, but maybe in this different color or pattern. I think that there's something about showing those beautiful finished projects that makes a huge, huge difference. So that was something I really tried to focus on this time. And luckily here in San Diego, there is no shortage of awesome, talented makers and sewers that I've been able to collaborate with on this. It's again, like another time when I might not be a really strong garment sewer, but gosh, I know like 15 people who are. So it's just been a matter of connecting with them, giving them fabric, working with them to develop what projects do you want to work on? And and it feels like a true partnership there because they're excited to get an opportunity to sew with fabric that isn't commercially available yet. They're going, "Ooh, I get early access. This is great. And, you know, some of them even have sewing pattern businesses where they get an opportunity to sew with this brand new fabric, an example for their own lookbook, that then it's kind of two birds with one stone, right? Um, A great example of this is Alina Design Co., who I partnered with on one of the projects for Balboa. She sewed this great skirt. Her Chai Town Chinos um, pattern is also, like I think, Uh, view B or view C of the pattern is a skirt. And she hadn't had an opportunity to sew and photograph it yet. So we took this opportunity to sew it up in Balboa, have it professionally photographed. And it's part of my lookbook, but it's also part of her business. She's able to then point to that and say, look, folks, and if you buy this pattern, you can sew this up as well. So it's, you know, finding opportunities to kind of connect with other people in this world, share what I'm excited about with the collection, give them an opportunity to sew with it early. I think it's, you know, another example of how collaboration is really, really, really serving me in these different fabric launches. And I hope it gets people excited to sew with it, so.
0: Yeah, I think especially when you run an online fabric shop, where mm-hmm. somebody can't unroll the bolt, you know, when you go to a fabric shop in person, and you're thinking of buying some fabric, you often will take the bolt of fabric, lay it out on the table and unroll the bolt a little bit and kind of see a half yard in front of you and decide, right. you know, how it looks. Um, yeah. And that will, you know, convince you or not convince you whether you want to have some cut and take it home. Um, when you can't do that, you know, when you're looking online at a picture, and often the picture is a little square. And um, mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. convinces you you in that moment is the next photo in the listing, which is the picture of the dress or the picture of the project um, sewn up with the fabric. And if you don't have a, a choice, you know, if you're not able to see that or see a few of those, um, it's really difficult to, to choose to buy that, you know, that that piece of fabric. So I think for an online shop um, and for online shop owners, those sewn up projects Um, And if they can pull them from your lookbook,
1: I think that's, you know, really, it's really helpful. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because, and that's, you know, not to um, put down Robert Kaufman's efforts because they do a ton on their marketing side as well. But in terms of photography, they end up kind of stopping after they've got photos of the different swatches, photos of book view projects. That's kind of it for them. They do so many different Collaborations and to so many different collections that if they were to do extensive photography for every single collection, they they would probably go out of business. Like I would have no idea how they manage all of that creative creative work. And so, um, you know, as a partner, that's something that I'm able to take on and say, I'm, I'll do some of the lifting for this marketing as well. Um, even though, you know, I think both of us are responsible for marketing the collection. I think that that's something that I was really eager this time around to do a little bit more of the heavy lifting and creating those sort of secondary images of the finished products. Mm -hmm. Plus, that's an opportunity for me to really make sure that those images are on brand, that they fit with the rest of the work that I create for Cotton and Flax, that there's no like kind of mismatch in terms of quality or in terms of the style of products that are um, getting made into samples. And so it's, more creative control for me, as well as an opportunity for more eyeballs to get on the work and to get excited about sewing with it. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, And you've recently opened a retail store, which you can see a picture of (laughs) on your Instagram. It's adorable. So um, I know, you know, that was sort of, you were humming and hawing, like, is this really, you know, like the next right step? It's expensive. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a Mm -hmm. commitment. You sign a lease, you've got a space, you've got a have um, somebody there to open it up and you got to stay there while it's open, <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a commitment um, to have a, a retail space. So I wondered if you could just talk briefly about the decision to do it um, and what some of the benefits you see um, of actually having a physical place where people can come and shop. Yeah, definitely.
1: Um, So the retail shop was a surprise. I didn't think I was going to be doing that this year. I didn't think that that was within my reach um, for the next year or so. It also wasn't a huge priority for me in terms of where I thought the brand was going next. Um, You're right that there are a ton of uh, things to consider when you're deciding whether to open a retail shop, one of which is staffing. Uh, thinking about how much you want to be essentially tied to the space. Um, thinking about, okay, who's going to be there during normal retail hours if I'm not? It's, it's a huge amount of the reason that I think it is sort of a drawback or a distraction to have your office be open to the public. Um, there's definitely things that... Um, In the last month of having it open, I'm realizing, ooh, okay, I'm going to need to figure out how to work around this because it's definitely different than my last space, which was a fourth floor walk up in a concrete industrial building (laughs) where no one would have come to visit. No one would have been, you know, walking by and just, oh, I'm just going to peek in and see what you're up to. This is a totally different experience for me. Um, Part of the reason that I jumped on it was that. The rent was actually reasonably affordable. Um, compared to what I was spending in my, uh, more industrial creative space, this was only about 20% more. And I felt like that type of opportunity doesn't come along very often. Uh, finding something that's reasonably within my budget. It's uh, to be completely clear. It's a micro retail space. Yeah, it is it's, beyond tiny. It's, it's adorable. 130 <laughs> square feet total. Okay, so yeah. it's, I'm doing a lot with the space, but it's not like this big, expansive sort of retail shop. Something like that, I I wouldn't have been able to do because the amount of capital you need to fill those shelves, to buy wholesale, to produce work, to fill those shelves would have been completely unattainable for me. So this was really um, kind of best case scenario, finding a place that was small enough that I could afford to stock the shop, small enough that I could afford a very small amount of renovation and building displays, uh, small enough that I'd be able to, um, you know, cover the cost of, you know, just the basic utilities and kind of all of the, you know, all that stuff. Air conditioning, you know, for a giant retail space is something that I feel like, oh my God, when I saw sticker price of some of that stuff for friends who are running shops, I'm like, oh God, what am I getting into? But, you know, the size actually ended up being a huge benefit for me. It's small enough that I can kind of handle the basic logistics, big enough that I can still use it as a place for my creative office, my design studio. I'm in there, you know, five days a week working on design projects. People can kind of come and see what I'm up to. And it's an opportunity for me to highlight my work and to show it off in a new way and allow people locally to discover it in an organic way. That wasn't something that was going to happen in my old space. So it's definitely a trade-off there are definitely new challenges that I am working to overcome, but uh, you know, it was a unique opportunity and I'm glad I jumped at the chance. That's for sure.
0: Yeah. I'd love to check in with you in a year and see how you feel about it <laughs> because it's, yes, it's yes. new and it's different and it's a, it's a, it's a dream a ton of people have and you're doing it. So, you know, yeah, as you yeah. said, there's ups and there's downs. So we'll talk later on <laughs> and see how yes, you're feeling absolutely. about it. That's really cool. So, um, uh, I want to, um, I want to just, make sure that we have time to um to get to your recommendations because you've yes. got some really good ones. And um one of them is Knitwit magazine. And I have to admit that I don't knit. So um, <laughs> I well I know how to knit, but I'm a terrible knitter. Um, so I don't read Knitwit magazine, but maybe um you can tell us a little bit about it and what's inside of it.
1: Oh my gosh, Abby, you need to read Knitwit magazine because okay. it's not just for knitters. Okay. This is like my absolute favorite textile arts magazine. They cover all sorts of things. They do cover a lot of um like knitting and crocheting sort of projects. Um, and they I believe they distribute um a pattern to their subscribers like I think once or twice a quarter. Um, and those are unique patterns that are designed just for them. And they're really cool. They're a little bit more trendy or fashionable or um, modern than I think other venues are. Um, so that that's something that really differentiates them. But they also cover things like weaving and um, more like garment sewing, fashion projects. It's really, I, I think it's for anybody who's interested in textiles at all, that would be something I would pick up. And they just made the transition to, um, a di- more of a digital website sort of version of their magazine. So if you can find back issues, go find them now because they're about to be a lot more expensive and rare. So go grab those while you can find them. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's run by this amazing designer, Zinzi from Los Angeles, who I had the opportunity to meet while I was living there. And I just think her creative vision is just so on the mark. Really, really different than a lot of the other things that I'm seeing in that world.
0: Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna get one and and uh, and take a look because I love yes.
1: magazines.
0: So you're gonna love it. Okay, that sounds good. Um, and you use the Get to Work book, which is made by um, Elise Blaha Kripe. And um, you're. It sounds like you must be a paper planner person. I am actually a digital planner person, so I can't use a paper planner. I made the switch <laughs> like a couple of years ago. I never thought I would, and then I did, and now I can't go back. So I can't get a paper planner, but I love Get to Work book and I love Elise and I listen to her podcast and I follow her on Instagram and I followed her (laughs) for years. So I'm super familiar with this product, um, but I'm not a user of this product. So you are a user to tell us what you like about it.
1: I'll tell you, I was not a paper planner person until I got this. And honestly, I have just been in awe of how much Elise gets done. She's somebody who I connected with when I moved to San Diego and she's just like She's no joke. She is really as productive as she seems on Instagram. Like she is getting things done in a really methodical but like not stressed out basket case way like I feel like I am a lot of the time. One of the things I think that, about like yeah,
0: one of the ahead. things yeah. that she always says is like you know, she has mantras, like she has different mm-hmm. like in and one of the things in get to work book is like there's phrases on mm-hmm. the different months, right? Like mm-hmm, that are, mm-hmm. you know, to, meant to sort of help you be productive, or you know, get through your to do list, or whatever. And yeah, one, of, yeah. one of her phrases is "there is enough time," and I I yeah. just love that one because I often am like, "there's not enough time; and it's just not going to um, happen." Yep. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And and then I'm like, "no, there is enough time," and that just like it calms yeah. me down. So.
1: I love that. Yeah, one of my favorite things about the planner is that it has this area at the end of every month where you can kind of do like kind of like a monthly check in of like here's what went great. Here's what I'm still working on. Here's what I need to stop working on. Here's what we're like letting go of. Here's what we're going to start up next month. And it kind of gives me this opportunity to just slow down for a second, check in with what's working, what's serving me in my work, and my business, and my creativity, what I need to like immediately put down because it's like causing too much stress or it isn't going anywhere. It needs a break, whatever that might mean. Um, it's, it's something that I wasn't doing before when I was more in the kind of Google calendar world. And it just sort of felt like all I was doing in there was shoving tasks further and further into the future as I kind of backed up and got behind on things. And this, I feel, I feel like is more mindful. It's more, um, there's more intention behind it rather than just sort of feeling like I'm constantly in catch up mode.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. I like that. And then your last one are the free online classes available at Creative Live, which it sounds like you listen to in the background while you're packing orders. And just in full disclosure, I have a class on Creative Live as well. And so do you. You have classes on yeah. Creative Live. And it's a fun experience to go and teach those classes and then um and have them there. But I don't often turn them on. Um Creative Live, you can buy the classes, but then they also sort of re air them on a schedule, right? And then they you mm-hmm. can kind of tune in and sort of see whatever happens to. Be on kind of
1: like on yeah. TV, sort of thing. And I wasn't really super familiar with them until I went to teach for them. I taught two classes. I taught a um, creative marketing class that's really focused in on a growing an authentic social media presence. And I taught a screen printing class for them. And that experience was incredible for a lot of reasons, which we could talk about another day. But one of the things that I discovered after teaching for them was that they are constantly streaming classes for free. You don't get to choose which classes. Um, it's kind of like a selection of 10 or 12 that are available each day that are kind of random. Um, but there's almost always something there that's interesting to me as a creative business owner. And it's allowed me to discover a lot of other makers who, um, I wasn't necessarily familiar with their work or their businesses and to be inspired and, um, empowered by their, their classes. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of one in particular to like look out for or recommend. Um I honestly like, if I like um, yeah. Megan Almond's class. She's got oh, a she's bunch awesome. of classes on there. Um yeah. I know yeah. um
0: uh Tara Gentili, um, although I guess her last name's something different now, but she's got some great gla- classes on there too. Yeah. And I mean, I have a lot of friends who've taught with them. So um, but
1: yeah, yeah there's yeah. lots to watch. Yeah, I saw um, one of Kari's classes, the Indigo class that I watched on there was really cool. And then, um, gosh, Robert Mahar, I feel like anytime mm-hmm. I see his classes pop up, even though I feel like a lot of the crafts that he's doing, I've tried before and I don't necessarily need a reintroduction to them, there's something just about his teaching style and voice it's that I fun. find so calming and yeah. like. <laughs> I'm like, I'll just listen to him. And it's like meditation. Yeah, it's, great. it's
0: just nice. It's just nice yeah. to listen to. So absolutely. So go check those out for sure. And Erin, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Walsh Naps podcast. It was really nice talking with you.
1: Thanks, Abby. I'm, I'm looking forward to checking in with you in a year when I've got more info on okay. how it was to run the retail shop. That'll be fun. Yes, that <laughs> sounds great.
0: And you've been listening to the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Visit my blog, walshynaps.com, where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing and blogging and small business delivered right to your inbox each week. This episode of the Walshy Naps podcast was sponsored by Search Press North America independent publishers of fine art and craft books for over 40 years. If you haven't met Debbie Shore and her wonderful half-yard books, now's a great time to check them out. Just published and topping the United Kingdom's bestseller list are the first two concept books, Build a Bag from Debbie Shore. Using two supplied durable plastic templates, sewists of all abilities can create beautiful bags for all occasions. Find out more at searchpressusa.com. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much. And I'll see you next time.